What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Creature Feature, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Many Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and agile. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, we are doing a listener questions episode. You can write to me your questions, and hey, I try to answer them as best I can. If you've got any questions that you would like me to answer, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com, anything related to animals, and I will give it my best shot to answer. So let's get right into it with the first question. Dear Katie Golden, a few weeks ago, I was in church when an infant was being baptized and our excellent priest said casually, as people do, that the baby was just, quote, soaking up everything like a sponge. And I thought, I think sponges are pretty heavily involved in filtering. However, I'm very ignorant about sponges. So when I got home, I took a cursory look and found that I wasn't wrong. But more importantly, that sponge physiology is remarkable and romantic so i naturally and immediately hoped you might do sponges thanks for thinking about it from marianne thank you so much for this episode idea marianne i agree that sponges are fascinating they have no brains no organs no true tissues they only have the ability to move around when they're larvae They can regenerate into a new sponge if you break off a peach. They are pretty magical. Their cells can migrate through their bodies, and some cells can even change function. There are even carnivorous sponges, which can trap and eat small prey. They don't even have just one mouth. They have many, many, many tiny mouths called ostia. Despite the fact that they have no noses, they can also do this thing called a sneeze where they eject waste-filled mucus out of their tiny mouths. So they sneeze through their mouths, which is rude for a person to do, but normal for a sponge to do. 
And you can only see this sneeze if you speed up footage of a sea sponge, but there is some footage online if you look for a sea sponge sneeze. I think you should find it. Should be safe to look for that, I think. Uh, but yeah, it is a great idea to do a whole episode on sea sponges. I would love to do that, and I probably will soon. So thank you for that suggestion. On to the next question. Hey, Katie, I was wondering if you were tasked with writing a Black Mirror episode in which the bad actors running the military of a nation wanted to utilize the animal kingdom for espionage in some way, like Valdemir the Beluga, which creature would you force to become our surprisingly skilled collaborator? This is from PK. Thank you for the surprisingly specific question. Uh, so some background on what listener PK is referring to. Vladimir is a beluga that, well, actually it's called Vladimir with kind of an H. It's like an H in front of the name Vladimir. So Vladimir uh, is a beluga that was found by Norwegian fishermen in 2019 with a camera strap to it. The theory is that it's a spy beluga from Russia, given that the camera says, quote, equipment St. Petersburg, which, if it's an actual spy beluga, seems kind of sloppy to label your beluga essentially as coming from St. Petersburg. So it seems a little too obvious to be an actual spy beluga. But uh, both the U.S. and Russia have indeed used whales in military programs. Still, it's also probable that the whale is part of some kind of zoological research or other purpose, given how the camera was so clearly labeled, which again seems weird if it's a spy beluga. On to the question of what animal would I use as a spy? I think I would use an animal that's pretty cosmopolitan. So when I say cosmopolitan, it doesn't mean a cultured animal. It means an animal that lives all over the world so that you could train it and deploy it and it would not raise too many suspicions. Uh, so one also that could be equipped with a tiny spy camera and would be guaranteed to come back to a certain location. Uh, my first thought is bees. I'd probably recruit some bees uh, fix tiny recorders or cameras to them as long as my target was near some flowers. Uh, I would have an army of faithful little spies who would return to the hive at uh, whenever, you know, they're done doing their little patrol of all the flowers. Uh, so I think they would be quite useful. I guess the downsides of the downside of them is the fact that they are so small. But honestly, pigeons are also good candidates for spies because you can train a pigeon to return to a specific location, a la homing pigeons. Uh, and in fact, in World War I, pigeons were given spy cameras and they were actually used for espionage. Uh, the CIA also used pigeons as spies during the Cold War and actually used them on American soil purportedly for quote-unquote testing. The pigeons were outfitted with cameras that were very advanced at the time and were able to take high-definition photographs of their targets with like a lot of detail. It was pretty exciting, I guess, for the CIA. Little suspicious that they were using them uh, <laughs> on U.S. soil. 
I'm not saying we're currently surrounded by spy pigeons, but I guess maybe think before you share state secrets while giving bread to pigeons in the park. That's just my suggestion. All right, on to the next listener question. Hey, Katie, love the show. I have a couple questions for your trove of knowledge. One, is it true that killing a wasp or hornet will attract others to that location? And two, why are some dogs particularly interested in their pee males while others aren't? I have a Betty Whippet who absolutely has to smell everything he walks past, but isn't very interested in socializing with other dogs. All other dogs I know enjoy a sniff, but aren't as adamant or thorough as he is. Maybe he's just strange. Uh, And he attached pictures of the little doggy. So this is from Iona. Thank you for the questions and for the lovely photo of the dog. I know his name's not Mr. Grumpers, but he looks like a Mr. Grumpers because he's got a Mr. Grumpers face. So let's answer the first question first. Is it true that killing a wasp or hornet will attract others to that location? So first, let's talk about bees, actually. Uh, Not my spy bees that I talked about earlier, but species of honeybees uh, who will release alarm pheromones when they are attacked. And they will also release an alarm pheromone when they use their stinger, which detaches. And higher concentrations of alarm pheromones will induce other honeybees to want to sting. Although this plateaus once a certain maximum concentration of alarm pheromone is detected, which is pretty clever when you think about it, because once you get enough bee stings, the the threat has probably been dealt with. And if you get more things coming to sting, that's just superfluous attacks. And it's costly because it kills the bee. So uh, killing a bee um, does, other than like the be killing itself by stinging you doesn't really cause it to release alarm pheromones unless it releases the alarm pheromones before you kill it it's unlikely to attract other bees or if by killing it you kind of smoosh it and like I guess pop open the alarm pheromone gland Uh, when a bee dies it does release oleic acid which induces hygienic cleaning behavior in other bees basically undertaking behavior so they will clear out the dead bee because they smell the oleic acid Uh, and this is probably you know to keep the hive clean and hygienic Uh, you know you gotta you gotta bring out your dead uh, when you live in a hive and you gotta keep things clear uh, so disease doesn't spread On to wasps and hornets. So social wasps and hornets both have alarm pheromones like bees that allow them to coordinate with their sisters when there is a threat or a target to attack. So like a bee, if uh, you manage to kill a wasp or hornet, uh, if before you kill it, you trigger its alarm pheromone, that will potentially alert other wasps or hornets to your location. Or if you smush it such that the alarm pheromone uh, gland releases that chemical, you may also attract other wasps or hornets to your location. Uh, But is the act of killing the wasp or hornet the trigger to releasing pheromones? So like say you expertly assassinate a wasp before it even knows what hits it. 
is that going to release pheromones? Because uh, I, I see a lot of advice online not to kill a wasp because it will attract other wasps by releasing an alarm of pheromone. Like the killing of the wasp is uh, what releases the pheromone. But I was not able to find any research that would back up that claim. It seems more likely that when you kill a wasp or you kill a hornet, you don't immediately kill it. So it has a chance to release that alarm pheromone before uh, dying. Or if you smash the wasp and you release the contents of its venom glands, uh, which contains the alarm pheromones, that could also draw more wasps or more hornets to your location. Um but, like, if you had a instant wasp-killing death ray uh, that can just turn a wasp from being alive to dead, the dead wasp itself does not really release an alarm pheromone just because it died. Uh, otherwise, wasps would freak out all the time every time a wasp dies of natural causes inside the nest, and that would not be safe or practical for the wasps. In fact, studies of wasp alarm pheromone, they actually capture the wasps uh, by freezing them. So they capture the wasps, they freeze them, and this kills them. And that way they can safely extract the alarm pheromone uh, from their venom sacs. Uh, so, you know, because they don't, they don't want to like kill them by smashing them or having them be scared before they die so that, you know, they release the alarm pheromone. So they, they can extract it this way. And wasps and hornets, just like bees, also engage in this sort of undertaker behavior uh, where they remove dead colony members. So it's very likely that just like in bees, there's some kind of chemical release upon death that uh, the other members of the colony are sensing that lets them know that it is time for body disposal. I don't know if the exact chemical has been identified in uh, wasps and hornets, but you know, whether it's like oleic acid like in bees or some other fatty acid or something else entirely, I don't know. But yeah, I, I suspect that uh, they are, you know, pretty well uh, equipped with a a chemical that lets other, uh, their sisters basically know that there's a dead body here cleared out, but it's not the same as an alarm pheromone. It doesn't, uh, you know, have them all convene to go to war. It's just basically like, hey, there's a dead body over here. You got to clean it out. So uh, that would be my my answer is like killing them might indeed cause other wasps to convene at the location if they're social wasps. Uh, but it's not because it's a dead wasp releasing the pheromone. It would be the wasp is a, is aware of the danger uh, like that instinct to release the pheromone happens before it dies or you've smooshed it such that it, it releases the pheromone anyways by just kind of popping open the venom glands. So yeah, uh, real, <laughs> real fun stuff with wasps. So we are going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we've got more listener questions. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career 
And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Oh, that's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I am going to now answer the second half of the question, why some dogs are particularly interested in pee-pee smells while others aren't. The person who wrote in has a dog who is very interested in smelling everything he walks past, but he is not interested in socializing with other dogs. It's really interesting. I, I've noticed this too. I have a dog, my dog Cookie, who loves smelling everything. She also is not necessarily that interested in socializing with other dogs. She's a little scared of other dogs. I think with, I mean, with scents, it is a very enriching activity for dogs. So I would highly recommend people let their dogs smell things on walks. Uh, it is like for dogs, their sense of smell is so incredibly powerful and detailed that it's almost like our vision is to us where they can find so much information just from smelling smells. They know like when something came by, what it was. They can usually tell like, you know, like was this dog, you know, in estrus? Was this dog, you know, stressed? Uh, So all sorts of things from these pea smells and then all sorts of other things from so many other different smells. And so to them, like when they sniff around in a park or wherever, they are getting all this information. So it's like reading a newspaper or looking at an art gallery. They're getting a lot of stimulation from it. So it's really enriching for them. 
it's a nice idea to let your dog sniff around, get get some good sniffs in because they're essentially just like keeping up with doggy news. Uh, why some dogs are more interested in it than others? I mean, it's it's a really interesting question. I think it just comes down to dogs having different personalities. You know, my dog is kind of an introvert like your dog. Uh, she enjoys smelling things a whole lot, but she gets a little bit scared from other dogs. So maybe for her, you know, the smells are a much more safe way for her to keep up with the dog news, know like who her neighbors are, what other dogs are doing, but it doesn't come with the same sort of intimidation that she experiences when she's actually face to face with another dog. So she really enjoys the smells. Maybe it's really stimulating for her too, because if she's really high strung, uh, she gets, you know, a lot of stimulation just from the smells alone. Whereas maybe for another dog, they're more easily bored by the, just the smells and they want more stimulation by actually playing with other dogs. I would liken it maybe to humans, you know, like some people like, you know, more thrilling things like horror movies or roller coasters, whereas others are maybe more uh, satisfied with, you know, more calm things and just taking in like a painting or a book. Uh, really, you know, slowly and methodically is is plenty satisfying. So I think dogs are the same way. Some dogs are thrill seekers. They they need more stimulation than just smelling. And some dogs really just enjoy focusing on smelling and taking in their environment that way. All dogs uh, typically have such a refined sense of smell, though. I think it's a good idea to let them smell. And it's there's actually been some studies that allowing dogs to uh, smell their environment and, and search for things with smells like gives them a more optimistic outlook. <laughs> like they are more likely to um, continue to try to attempt puzzles and things like when they're given the chance to uh, just smell around their environment. So I, I, I highly encourage allowing your sweet little dog who loves smelling things to keep on sniffing. On to the next listener question. Do cannibal morphs of axolotls look different from the regular morphs? Also, are they physiologically different from their non-cannibal brethren? I've also heard that cannibalizing others can cause an axolotl to, quote, grow up and become a salamander-looking little beast. Are there cannibal morphs of animals other than axolotls? I know there are other animals that are just generally cannibals, but are there any that just have the occasional weird guy who starts munching on his friends or enemies, I guess? Why do you think people are so driven to keep exotic animals as pets when they should not be pets like chimpanzees? Is it a desire to feel special or different? Do they think they have a special connection with that animal? Or is it something I'm not thinking of? My first pet was a rabbit named Cookie, uh, which is also my dog's name, by the way. And after hearing that pet birds aren't really domesticated and are apparently the same as their wild counterparts, I've been wondering if the same is true for rabbits or if bunnies are more like dogs and have been selectively bred over a period of time to be domesticated or for other common animals that are kept as pets like rats, mice, ferrets, hamsters, etc. And then I got a bunch of beautiful photos of uh, Cookie the Rabbit, uh, rest in peace, little Cookie the Rabbit, uh, and a pet dog named Bear who's adorable. And this is from Sky. Uh, thank you for all of the really good questions and adorable animal pictures. Uh, Cookie was a very cute little bunny, looked like a little Oreo. And Bear is an adorable little gremlin of a dog. 
I love all these questions, so I'm going to answer all of them. Uh, let's first start with the first question, which is, do cannibal morphs of axolotls look different from the regular morphs? Also, are they physiologically different from their non-cannibal brethren? I've also heard that cannibalizing others can cause an axolotl to grow up and become a salamander-looking little beast. Uh, so, interestingly... Uh, there are many species of amphibians whose larvae can become cannibal morphs, such as tadpole uh, and salamander larvae. Now, remember that axolotls are permanent juvenile forms of salamanders, which is called neoteny. So cannibal morphs of toads occur when they eat large prey, such as shrimp. They will then become cannibal. And remember, cannibal more, uh, the larval forms of toads are uh, tadpoles. These cannibal tadpoles, uh, when they eat uh, larger prey like shrimp, will then become carnivorous and cannibalistic and will only eat meat or other tadpoles and will be larger than their brethren who are not cannibalistic. They usually have like bigger mouths. They're larger. They are kind of freaky looking. <laughs> when you compare them to their, their smaller siblings. Um, cannibal morphs of uh, salamander larvae also happen. Uh, so salamanders and axolotls are very closely related. Uh, axolotls just happen to be, basically they are salamanders, but they retain all of their juvenile characteristics throughout their entire life whereas salamanders go through a metamorphosis process similar to like uh, toads go from tadpole to toad, salamanders go from being aquatic to being terrestrial. So salamander larvae uh, can also turn into cannibal morphs. Uh, usually this is due to low nutrition stress. Uh, they will develop larger heads and jaws and they will be able to eat their fellow salamander larvae. So yes, for salamanders, their cannibal morphs have a different uh, size uh, from the others. Uh, and it is, you know, it's, <laughs> they are, they're larger. They got bigger mouths, uh, similar to the toads. Um, On to axolotls. Now axolotls are interesting. So young axolotls, like salamanders, can become cannibals if there's not available food. Typically, they specialize in eating the arms or legs of their fellow axolotls. But cannibalism is so common uh, amongst axolotls, it's not so much that there is a cannibal morph of axolotls. It's kind of an opportunistic thing where uh, they will, if they can, they will eat uh, the arms of their, their fellow uh, young axolotls and uh, try not to get their limbs eaten. And in fact, it's so common that it's thought that the axolotl's amazing ability to regenerate their arms and legs could be a response to this selective pressure of just so many uh, arm and leg nibbling that happens when food is scarce. Uh, yeah, so, so axolotls, unlike the previous examples, seem to be typically all potential cannibals, uh, and they may be, like the cannibals who are successful may actually be bigger because they're more successful at feeding and didn't have their limbs eaten off. Uh, I don't think that there is a specific cannibal morph of axolotls. 
Now, it's true that axolotls, which normally live their entire lives in their aquatic juvenile forms with gills, can mature into a full salamander if they are able to ingest enough iodine. So in the lab, this is done with injections. Um, I've seen some sources uh, say that they can get enough iodine through cannibalism, but I've not really seen exactly what studies uh, these sources are referring to. I, I don't really see any research to back this up. I think it's theoretically possible if they're able to get enough iodine in their diet, um, but I, I don't think it would just be through cannibalism that they could mature into a full salamander. Uh, it, it, but they they would have to get quite a bit of iodine in their diet, uh, and usually, like the these uh, sort of adult morphs happen like in laboratory settings. Become a part of the fast growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. On to the next question in this batch of questions. So uh, this question was, why do you think people are so driven to keep exotic animals as pets when they should not be pets? Uh, well, so in the case of, and this is sort of just all my theorizing, uh, in the case of dangerous exotic pets, such as tigers and lions, I personally think it's a power fantasy. I think that it, the, it being a creature that in the wild would not hesitate to kill you, uh, but if you have it under your control or, you know, so you think you have it under your control in captivity, 
it might get make you feel powerful. I mean, uh, for some, it could be about domination. For others, it could be feeling special in the way that, like, I think it's a similar phenomenon to, like, serial killer groupies, uh, people who write into ser- serial killers and think that they're in love with serial killers. Like, the idea is, like, I'm so unique. This killer animal or this killer person will see something in me and respect me and not kill me uh, and is, like, my friend or or whatever. And so, like... You know, for people who own uh, dangerous exotic animals, I think it's similar. Like, this killer animal is my pet and friend rather than my predator, and that makes me special. Of course, this does not always work out in the human's favor, and it almost never works out in the animal's uh, favor. So I, I don't necessarily think it's a healthy way of viewing relationships between humans and animals. So uh, in terms of less dangerous exotic pets, so not like your chimpanzees, lions, or tigers, but, you know, like smaller exotic pets. I think a lot of it is novelty. Like you want something more exciting than a cat or a dog. Uh, I personally find cats and dogs plenty exciting, very fascinating behaviorally. Um, I think the fact that they've co-evolved with us to some extent makes their behavior really, really interesting. So to me, there's nothing cooler than that. But, you know, I do understand that exotic pets are, they're unusual. And so we are often drawn to novelty, to interesting things that we haven't seen before. Uh, and certainly a lot of exotic pets are really cute and cool. I've seen my share of exotic animals that I wish I could keep as a pet because they're really cute or beautiful. And I'd love to hold them and pet them. Uh, the reason I generally don't go for these types of pets is that there's a lot of difficulty in figuring out whether they are ethically sourced or if I can really provide them with a good quality of life, if I can even keep them alive. Uh, when I was a kid, I really wanted all sorts of exotic animals, though. Like, I, I wished I could keep them. I, I didn't get them because <laughs> uh, I don't think my parents wanted to turn our house into a zoo, but I do... Um, I think that like when I was a kid, it was born out of this innocent fascination with nature. And so I don't really blame people who see like a cool animal and wish they could have it as a pet. I I don't think it's a bad human quality that we see things and we want to be friends with these animals. Uh, It's just that when when we're adults, you know, we have a responsibility to uh, do research and make sure that we know what we're doing before we buy a pet we've never heard of. And if you don't know much about this animal and you're drawn to its novelty, I, I think it, the responsible thing to do is, is to realize, well, if I don't know much about this animal, how can I provide a good life for it? Um, you know, that's not to say that all non-domesticated animals make bad pets or they're unethical. It's just a really tricky territory and you really, really have to know what you're doing uh, you know, and the ethics of like an- the animal trade is not very transparent. It's not like you can go to a pet store and be like, hey, did you, is this frog like ethically traded? Uh, so that's, that's going to be really difficult to figure out. So, you know, I, I think that it, in order to own an animal that is, you know, more unusual, you have to do a lot of research. You have to really know what, you know, what the situation is with those animals and and how to keep them happy and healthy. Um, So on to the last question. This question was about animals and 
domestication because the listener referenced an episode where I talked about how birds aren't really domesticated and are very similar to their wild counterparts. Uh, and so the listener was wondering if the same is true for rabbits or for pets like rats, mice, ferrets, hamsters, and etc. Et so bunnies are definitely domesticated. They are far more docile around humans than their wild counterparts. You can actually see the classic signs of domestication in bunnies. Their ears flop down. You see their coat uh, coloration kind of change, much like with dogs. With dogs, the ears flop down. They have the the color blocking on their coats, uh, which is something that is kind of a side effect of domestication. It, while it's true, we will look for those traits and then try to exaggerate them in our in our dog breeds and bunny breeds. The the ear cartilage weakening and the the coat colors sort of turning spotty and blotchy. That is a side effect of essentially during the development of the the animal as a fetus, like there are these neural crest cells that when we select for animals with a better temperament, we're essentially selecting for uh, certain types of like, you know, the, this neural crest development that also impacts things like cartilage production, coat color. So it's like this interesting thing that just sort of by this like accident they are connected in terms of the animal's development both the you know the temperament and coat and cartilage development and so you see that in in domesticated bunnies you see the floppy ears um i would actually compare bunnies more to cats and dogs than i would to like pet birds pet exotic birds uh, obviously, chickens are domesticated and are much more docile than jungle fowl. So chickens are a bird that's been domesticated. So domesticated rabbits cannot be released into the wild. Uh, I don't care what you read with Watership Down. That situation would generally not be good <laughs> for domesticated bunnies. They do not have the same kind of survival abilities as wild rabbits. Wild rabbits, meanwhile, do not make particularly good pets. And even when raised as young, they will not be as docile as a domesticated bunny. Uh, bunnies can make great pets. They just take a lot of care and research because some concepts around keeping them, such as like leaving them in a hutch all the time or feeding them carrots all the time, are not good care practices. They are they're a big responsibility, just like a dog, uh, just like a cat. In fact, in some ways, they may be more difficult than a dog or a cat because they have all sorts of behaviors that you have to, you know, like nibbling behaviors. They're always trying to chew on things. So you have to be careful about electrical cords. Uh, but, you know, if you and I think there's like, you know, they, they need a lot of freedom. They need a lot of like hopping around space. So that might be difficult sometimes for people to provide, especially when the idea is that like, oh, you just keep them in a cage all the time, which is not really good for them. Um, but yes, I mean, if you once you know like what you have to do with bunnies and if you are able to provide them with all the stimulation and food and care that they need, they can be great pets. In fact, I've heard bunnies will follow their owners around the house. They can be very loving. They are fully a domesticated pet, so they are not like a wild exotic animal. Uh, pet rats, hamsters, mice, guinea pigs, and ferrets are also all domesticated. Their behaviors are significantly different from their wild counterparts, um, mainly in that they are more docile, much more easily handled, uh, much calmer around humans. 
So pet ferrets, which seems sort of like some little wild, wild little gremlin that you get from the forest, are actually fully domesticated. They are not simply captured and tamed black-footed ferrets from the wild. Pet ferrets are domesticated much like bunnies uh, versus wild rabbits. In fact, the first pet ferrets were probably domesticated over 2,000 years ago. So all of the animals that I listed can make good pets, uh, given that you research them beforehand, uh, ferrets being perhaps the most high intensity in terms of activity and destructiveness, and rats being very needy in terms of socialization. Uh, sometimes also, depending on where you live, you can't keep them as pets, especially in islands like Australia, because escaped pets can kill or outcompete with the native species. So you always want to check that to make sure that they're actually safe to keep uh, in your local area. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, these are all animals that I think can can make very good pets. It's just something that I think, I mean, especially with like hamsters, like it's seen as like a starter pet. And that often results in the hamster dying because like a child who's too young to understand is given the hamster and doesn't know how to take care of it. And hamsters are actually very delicate. They, they can be quite difficult pets to keep healthy. Uh, and, and it's, you know, I, I think that, you know, despite the challenges, it's very worthwhile as long as you put in a lot of effort into taking care of the animals and doing what you need to do to keep them healthy and safe. And, you know, I, I, I am definitely not against responsible pet ownership. And I think all of them can make good pets. Uh, so, you know, thank you guys so much for listening. That'll do it for this listener question episode. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. As you can tell by this episode, I am happy to answer any question relating to animals, uh, to people, to people and animals. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I really enjoy these because it will send me on fun little research paths and make me think about things sometimes I haven't even thought about before. So please do send me those questions. And uh, next, next time I will do the uh, animal sound of the week and answer that for you. So stay tuned for that. And thank you so much uh, to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exo Lumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows, I don't judge you. See you next Wednesday. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, 
LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.